Revelation chapter 7 today. Revelation chapter 7, looking at the entirety of the chapter. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 1031. Now I've entitled today's message, Salvation Belongs to Our God. And as always, I'll begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll look at the text together. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for another Sunday morning in which to gather and worship you. Lord, I thank you for each one who is here. And I also think of those who could not be here today because of illness. Lord, please watch over them. Please bless them. And if it be your will, Lord, please bring them back to full strength this week. Lord, for those watching online today, would you use the ministry of the word to, to bless them, to Increase their their faith in you to give them newfound joy in the salvation that they possess and a desire to proclaim it to others as well. Lord, be with us in this time as we study your word. Please enlighten all of our minds. Uh, Please give us an eagerness to make application uh, to our hearts. And Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so again, we're in Revelation chapter 7 today, but I'm going to begin with some review. So going back to chapter 4, you'll recall this is where the Apostle John was given a vision of the throne room of heaven. And he saw God himself there on his throne in all of his glory. And God was being worshipped by angels and saints alike. Then in chapter 5, John noticed a scroll in God's hand. And that scroll was sealed with seven seals, and that scroll represented God's plans for the culmination of world history. And John heard as a call went out, who is worthy to take this scroll and to break its seals? And at first it appeared that no one would step forward, but then finally a lamb stepped up to the throne. And this was our Lord Jesus Christ. And he steps forward because there was no one else in all existence who was qualified to take that seal and to break its, uh, to take that scroll and to break its seals. He is the only one who can do it by virtue of who he is and what he has done. Well, then we came to chapter 6, and here we witness Christ begin breaking those seals. Friends, the breaking of the first seal marked the beginning of the day of the Lord, which is that future time in which God will begin unleashing his final judgments on the world through our Lord Jesus Christ. And as chapter 6 unfolded, we watched Christ break six of those seven seals, each one introducing a new wave of divine judgments upon the world. Now we come to chapter 7, and here we would expect to see Christ break that final seal, but he doesn't. That doesn't come until chapter 8. Instead, here in chapter 7, we have a long pause from the judgment narrative. And this pause is here to highlight God's saving works during the day of the Lord. So in other words, even in the midst of these great outpourings of his judgments on the world, he is also pouring out his spirit upon the world. 
He is doing a tremendous saving work, even as he meets out his just judgments. And that's because God is not just a God of judgment. He is also a God of grace. And in his grace, God is continually holding out his offer of redemption, even to his bitterest enemies, even during the day of the Lord itself. He is still extending mercy to men and women and children. And as this remarkable chapter unfolds, we're going to see the mercy of God played out in two scenes, uh, one on earth, one in heaven. Both of these highlight God's grace towards sinners, though they do so in different ways. And so what I'm going to do this morning is to take this chapter one scene at a time. First, I'll offer a commentary on the scene. Uh, Then I'll explain its full theological significance. And then finally, I'll offer some words of application. Okay, so let's turn now to the first of these two scenes. That's verse 1. The Apostle John writes this. Now, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. Now, let me pause here so you'll notice immediately that our eyes have shifted from looking at heaven to now looking upon the earth. And we see four angels at the four corners of the earth. Now, the Apostle John did not believe the earth was square. He's talking about the four points of the compass. So there are angels north, south, west, and east. And John describes what they were doing there. He says they were holding back the four winds, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any trees. So these winds represent the next rounds of God's judgments on the earth. And the angels have been dispatched by God through Christ, and they are holding those winds. They are just waiting for God's signal to release the winds, bring the next round of judgments. But then we look at verse 2, and it says, Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun. So John looks, and now he sees another angel, and it's rising onto the scene from the east, probably from the land of Palestine, maybe from the city of Jerusalem itself. And he sees this angel ascending. And he says, this new angel has the seal of the living God. Now, this refers to God's signet ring. This is probably the very ring God used to stamp the seven seals on his scroll. Now, this angel has it. And it says, and this angel then called with a loud voice to the four angels that had been given power to harm the earth and the sea. And this angel says to the other four, quote, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So, friends, we are looking at a really dramatic scene here. We're looking at the earth and we've got these four. Four angels at the four points of the compass. They are waiting for the signal to unleash God's next round of judgments, but God does not give the order. Instead, he tells them to hang on, keep holding back the winds. And now he sends out this new angel, and he is going to seal the servants of God. This means that God has determined to save some people before the next round of judgments fall. And so, this angel must go out. He must mark the ones God has chosen on their foreheads so that God's judgment will pass over them. 
when the winds are released. That's what the sealing on the forehead signifies here. It speaks to God's ownership, God's protection of these individuals before the next round comes. Well, who's going to receive this divine seal? We notice in verses 4 through 8, it says, I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000. So God has a specific number in mind that he will seal. And friends, this speaks once again to the sovereignty of God over all things, even over salvation. God determines when they're going to be saved. He determines the specific number which will be saved. And now he has ordered an angel to go out and mark them. They are guaranteed to be saved. But God also has a a specific group of individuals in mind. It says 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Every tribe of the sons of Israel. Of Israel, And just to make sure that we uh, aren't thinking in figurative terms here, he goes on in verses 5 to 8 to give an exact number from each tribe. So verse 5, seal 12,000 from the tribe of Judah, then 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, and 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin. So 144,000 will be sealed, 12,000 from each tribe. By this point, it is absolutely clear that the seal is meant for a remnant of ethnic Israel. So to summarize, friends, just before Christ breaks that seventh seal and inaugurates this new wave of divine judgment on the world, before he sends out those four angels and they release the four winds, God, through Christ, sends out this additional angel to mark out a remnant of his historic people. He seals 12,000 of them from each tribe for a total of 144,000 ethnic Israelites. And he is sealing them to mark his ownership over them and thus to protect them from that next wave of judgment. Friends, according to subsequent chapters of this book, these sealed servants are being marked out as, quote, the first fruits of a great multitude to come. So in other words, God intends to save many, many of his historic people in the day of the Lord. Multitudes and multitudes of them. But he's beginning with these 144,000. And God will use these to reach all of the others. They are the first fruits. Through their testimony and their verbal witness, they will reach all of the others. All right, friends, so that's the commentary on this first scene. Now let's move into its significance. Let's ask the question of why God is marking out these Israelites. Friend, the answer to that is this. God is marking them out because God keeps his promises. It's just as simple as that. God keeps his promises. Now let me explain. Friends, way back in the book of Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible, God singled out a man called Abraham. 
Not because there was anything special about Abraham, but simply because he was God's choice. And God singled out Abraham, and God said this to him. Abraham, at that time called Abram, I want you to leave the land of Ur, leave everything you're familiar with, walk away from your false gods, and I want you to follow me from now on. And I want you to go to a new land which I will show you. And then God made this promise. He said, if you do that, I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless those who bless you, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. That was God's promise to Abraham. The scriptures tell us that Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. And Abraham packed his bags, he left the land of Ur, he followed God to the new promised land. Then we come to the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible. By this point, many generations have passed since Abraham's day. And the, the descendants of Abraham, now called Israelites, they are numbered in the hundreds of thousands, perhaps a million physical descendants of Abraham. But now they're not in the promised land, they're slaves in Egypt. There's a long story there that I won't get into. Simply know that all of the descendants of Abraham, now slaves in Egypt. They cried out to God for mercy, and God answered their pleas, and God rescued them out of slavery in Egypt, and he led them in a great train back to the land that he had promised to Abraham and to them. God gave his Ten Commandments to them. He also gave many other statutes and ordinances. God formed the descendants of Abraham into a nation, fulfilling the promise that he had made to Abraham, that I will make of you a great nation. God formed the Israelites into a nation. They rose to become one of the greatest nations in the history of the world. Why was God so intent on establishing this nation? Well, for a lot of reasons, but mainly because he intended to bring the Messiah into the world through them. And so God chooses a line. He forms them into a nation. He protects them as a nation. And through them, Messiah, our Lord Jesus, will come into the world. Now, over the course of its history, this nation repeatedly failed God. But even so, God continued to make more and more promises to them. And so, for example, we have this promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God said to King David, one of the, perhaps the greatest king that the nation ever had, God said to that king, quote, I will establish your throne forever. In other words, God promised David that there would always be an Israel, that Israel would always have a king, and that king would always be one of his physical descendants. Those were great promises to David. And as the Old Testament scriptures came to a close, God explained that the nation's rejection of him would result in discipline. God would allow foreign armies to come in to overrun them. They would be scattered to the four corners of the world. But one day, God would regather them. And this time, he would even give them new hearts so that they would be inclined to follow him. And never again would they be scattered. Never again would they worship false gods. Never again would their nation collapse. God would regather them, and he would change their hearts, and they would be preserved forever and ever. 
We have this promise in Isaiah chapter 11, quote, The Lord will extend His hand to recover the remnant that remains of His people. He will reassemble the banished of Israel and regather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. And we have this one in Jeremiah 31. God says, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth, a great company, and they shall return to me. I will lead them back, for I am a father to Israel, and they shall be a nation before me forever. And we have this one in Ezekiel 11. Thus says the Lord, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. You see, God made a promise to Abraham, and God made a promise to his sons, Isaac and Jacob, and God made a promise to the whole nation, and then God made a promise to their greatest king, David, and these promises were reaffirmed over and over. Even after they were disciplined and all sent into exile, the promises still held, and God said, I will keep them all right down to the letter. There will always be a nation of Israel. It will always have a king. It will always be a physical descendant of David. And though you're scattered, I will regather you and I will spiritually transform you. I will never, never renege on my covenants with you. Friends, Christ himself reaffirmed these promises in Matthew chapter 19 and in Luke chapter 22. And the Apostle Paul, speaking for Christ, reaffirmed them yet again in Romans chapter 11 when he said that all Israel will one day be saved. The point here, friends, is that God made promises. He made them to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to King David, to all Israel, and God intends to keep those promises. And so what we have here in Revelation chapter 7, as we're looking at the end of time, as history is reaching its culmination, we're in the day of the Lord itself. We have God taking steps to fulfill those promises. God is sealing 12,000 ethnic Israelites from each tribe, and he calls them the first fruits. There will be many, many more to come. And God is putting his seal upon them. They will be preserved through the remainder of this great day, and they will be a nation and a kingdom, and they will last forever and ever. Friends, here's the significance of all of this for you and me. If God intends to keep his promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to David and to all the nation of Israel, then, friends, you and I have assurance that he will keep his promises to us as well. See, friends, the New Testament scriptures offer a whole lot of promises to you and me. Wonderful, beautiful promises. And we don't have to worry about whether God is going to renege on those promises or whether he's going to fulfill them in a way that does not match what our expectations are. We don't have to worry about whether they're going to be allegorized or spiritualized. We're not going to see the fulfillment as he has laid it out literally in his word. We don't have to have any of those doubts. We know that God makes promises that he intends to keep and he communicates in a way that is easy to be understood, and he will, to the letter, to the letter, keep literally everything that he has promised to us. 
We see God keeping his ancient promises to Israel. He will do the same for every one of us. Because, friends, that is the kind of a God that he is. And it's all of grace. God was under no obligation to make any promises to anyone. But he did. And then he obligated himself to keep those promises. And when we finally see the full realization of them in that great day to come, we will be praising him for his grace. Well, friends, that is the first scene in this chapter. Let's turn now and look more quickly at the next scene. This is verses 9 through 17. The Apostle John writes, Now after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, in all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches, in their hands. Now you'll notice some differences between this new scene and the old one. In the old one, we were looking at earth. Now our eyes have been sent back into heaven. We're looking at a multitude around the throne of God. In the prior scene, we were looking at ethnic Israelites. Now we see a group representing all tribes, all peoples, all languages, all nations. In the prior vision, we saw a specific number, 144,000. This time we're told it's a countless number around the throne. So there are significant differences between the first vision and this new one. We're also told the appearance of this new group. It says they're wearing white robes. Of course, that makes sense because they're in heaven. Their white robes signify their holiness. Now in heaven, they've been purged of all sin Every last vestige of it is gone. Now they, are, now they are enjoying perfect righteousness. But then next it says that they have palm branches in their hands. That's because in the Apostle John's day, palm branches were a symbol of joyful celebration. So maybe you'll recall Christ's triumphal entry when he marches into Jerusalem and the crowd is following behind him. He's announcing himself to be the promised Messiah. And everyone around him is so excited. The scriptures say they grabbed palm branches and they threw them in the road and they started singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're throwing palm branches down as a sign of their joyful celebration that Messiah has come. And now here in heaven, the Apostle John witnesses this great scene, a vast multitude from every tribe and tongue and language clothed with white robes, and they too have palm branches. They are celebrating their triumph. This crowd is holy and it is happy, and we see their song in verse 10. They all cry out with a loud voice, And they say, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So their song in heaven is a song of salvation. They are praising God for the forgiveness of sins and for their spiritual victory. There they have been rescued from sin and death and hell. And they know that before long they shall reign with Christ on the earth in his promised kingdom. And they cannot help but sing about it. And friends, their song is so infectious that now others join into the chorus. Look at verse 11. It says, And all the angels were standing around the throne 
and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshipped. So now all of the angels of heaven have joined the scene. We've got the throne of God and the Lamb at the center, the four living creatures around the throne. We've got the 24 elders around the throne. We've got the vast, multi-ethnic multitude around the throne, and then outside of them, hundreds of millions of angels all the angels of heaven, and they are worshiping too. And listen to their song. Verse 12, they shout, Amen, which means everything that the multitude just praised you for, God, it's all true. Every bit of it is true. And then they add their own words of praise. They say, Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Now, friends, who is this multitude that they should be around the throne praising God? Who is this multitude so exuberant in their praise that even the angels want to come and join the song? Well, their identity is revealed in verses 13 and 14. Let's look at those verses together. John writes, Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? From where have they come? Verse 14, I said to him, Sir, you know. In other words, John is confessing his own ignorance. He's putting the question back to the elder. And the elder answers. He said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So who is in this vast multitude in heaven? Well, friends, these are men and women and children from all over the world who have either died or been martyred during the day of the Lord. They are victims of violence and persecution and terror, but now they are in heaven celebrating their victory. And how could they be in heaven? They are there because they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. See, this vast multitude, they entered the day of the Lord in a state of rebellion against God, every single one of them. But as the hour of trial unfolded, God's grace went out. And not just upon those 144,000, but to a vast multitude the world over, God's grace went out, His Spirit was outpoured. And this vast crowd from every nation on earth They responded to God's grace in repentance and faith. And so Christ's payment for sins was applied to them. And Christ's perfect righteousness imputed to their accounts. And so when they died, they died in a state of grace. And now their souls are in heaven. And they have been glorified. And they are awaiting their resurrection bodies. And they are leading the rest of heaven in a worship song. Verses 15 through 17, we read of the destiny of this multitude. It says, Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and they serve Him day and night in His temple, that is, His heavenly temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. I trust you hear Isaiah 49 coming through this passage. 
Verse 17, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So this is their destiny, friends. They will be near to God for all eternity. They will serve him with joy and they will be kept by his power forever and ever. Never again shall they have any physical needs. Never again shall they suffer. They shall enjoy everlasting pleasure in the presence of God and of the Lamb. The significance of all of this, my friends, is that even in the midst of great judgment, God extends great mercy. And not just for his historic people, the Israelites, but for all people the world over. Friends, how should we respond to all of this? Well, first of all, I think that our response should be the same as that vast multitude in heaven. We should praise the Son for His willingness to be our sacrificial Lamb. We should praise the Father for His willingness to save us. We should praise the Spirit for applying the benefits of Christ's atonement to our account. In short, we should praise the triune God for His grace and His power, which can soften the heart of anyone, even His greatest enemies. It softened our hearts. It made us willing and able to believe. And He will save many, many more before history concludes. We should praise God for His great grace. And secondly, friends, this passage ought to give us a greater appreciation of God's love for all nations. You see, friends, even from the beginning, when God chose Abraham and then Abraham's descendants, the nation of Israel, even then God was not choosing Israel to the exclusion of the world. God was choosing Israel for the purpose of blessing the whole world. Israel would be a light to all nations, and through them Messiah would come, who would make an atonement sufficient for all nations. God has always had a heart for all peoples. And after all is said and done, my friends, the kingdom of God will be a multi-ethnic, multicultural society with persons of every nation and tribe and language. And knowing this, friend, our resolve ought to deepen to share the gospel with everyone that we encounter. Friends, I also believe that John's vision here should be a reminder to us of the cross-cultural mission Christ inaugurated at his first advent. Surely you recall the Great Commission, Matthew 24. Our Lord Jesus said during his first advent, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them all things that I have commanded you. And then he said, Behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. God has always had a heart for all nations. And at his first advent, as Christ was launching the New Testament church, he commissioned her to go and make disciples of all the nations. And God guarantees the success of our work. He will have a people from every nation and language and tongue. Oh, but friends, what a privilege we have to participate in God's plan. Do you not want to... Look about you in that coming kingdom of God and see the faces of some that God used you to reach. 
Do you not want to see your children and grandchildren there, loved ones, neighbors, friends, and coworkers? Do you not want to see the faces of people from the other side of the world that you never met in this life, but you sacrificially gave to the cause of foreign missions? You sent representatives to other parts of the world, and they reached others for Christ. And now they're in the kingdom too, with their distinctive language and culture and background. My friends, our Lord has given us a great commission. Do you not want to be a part of it? Do you not want to see that kingdom extended through your efforts? So friends, let this passage cause you to praise God for His great mercy. Let it it help you to see God's heart for all nations. And then let it inspire you to take responsibility for the commission that He's given to you to do your own part through your verbal witness, through your sacrificial giving, maybe by answering the call to overseas missions yourself, to see that the kingdom of God indeed will be multi-ethnic, multicultural, multilingual. My friends, we have a wonderful passage here. Here in Revelation 7, we have a pause in the judgment narrative to remind us that the God who judges is also a God who saves. Thank God for His salvation today. Do your part to extend it to the farthest reaches of the world. Anticipate the day when His kingdom comes and we see that for ourselves. And let's pray together. Father, we thank You for this day. We thank You for Revelation 7. What a... What a welcome reprieve from those heady passages declaring your judgments on the world. Lord, like a a fresh breeze coming into a room to see that your spirit is going out even in that future day. That you will fulfill your promises to Abraham and his descendants. That means you'll fulfill your promises to us too. Lord, we thank you for being a God that has a heart for all nations, all peoples. We pray that you would give us a heart for them too. That during this time period, between your first and second advents, we would be about your work. Building a global people who will will inhabit that coming kingdom. Lord, we anticipate the great outpouring of your spirit in that final day too. Lord, may your Son come quickly. May that kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.